Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and for today's episode, I have a guest, a writer who has written for, amongst other things, Suicide Squad, Spider-Man, Roy of the Rovers, Doctor Who comics, and he's been one of Tharg's star and most hard-working droids on Judge Dredd, uh, Low Life, Ordinary, and many other titles, particularly recently writing The Small House and right up to date with Poison. He's also the co-creator of a brand new comic that we're going to be talking out about called Petrolhead. It's a very warm book club welcome to Rob Williams. Rob, welcome to the book club. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's delightful. Um, we met up at Thought Bubble this year and finally got round to arranging a uh, recording date. And Rob, as a new member of the book club, I get to ask you the origins question. What were your first comics that you read and how did you get into 2000 AD? I'm hazy on first comics. Uh, there, there was someone, uh, funny enough, I'm visiting my dad at the moment in um, today uh, in South Wales in the Rhondda Valley. And there was a woman up the street who used to give my mum her son's Victor book for boys when he'd finished with them. So that's going back a long way. It, so it might be that. That might be the gateway. I don't know. They were just all, I just always remember there were always comics around. I used to, when we used to go on holiday, I used to love, get very excited by like commando books and, it, you know, air race picture library you know, in, in, in those racks in little shops when you'd go away on, you know, on halls. Um, uh, and then I would get sort of, you, in newsagents in South Wales, you would you would kind of get a weird, so they were ballast on ships, which I always find fascinating. They were brought over. So you'd get sort of a, sort of DCs, uh, DC comics, and you'd pick up something, and you'd get this amazing cliffhanger, and you never, ever get to see the next issue. No chance, you know. So... In a narrative way, you just constantly there's, there was this awareness, there was this exciting comic world going on, but you just never got the, the whole stories. Uh, there was Marvel Weeklies, black and white reprints of things like Spider Man Weekly, and then of course Star Wars. Um, I think 2000 AD was my first memory of it. Is like a friend of mine um, had Star Lord, and and I remember very strongly being around his house and and flicking through Starlord and seeing sort of um Robusters and Strong Strontium Dog and um and I may have read Starlord before I read 2000 AD. Um uh but my first weekly order of 2000 AD, I think was 83. Uh, that was when I started ordering it regularly and I think it was Requiem for a Heavyweight was was kind of that era. And from that point on I had 2000 AD every week. Um, until a period in the nineties where I went off to college, and I think I just lost interest in comics for maybe a year, and just spent that time probably drinking too much and chasing girls instead, and um, and then came back to it. Um, so I did, I did, I missed. I know there's a there's a sort of recognised the two thousand eighty period in the nineties when two thousand eighty sort of maybe lulled a little, and um, I seem to have avoided all of that because I just wasn't there to read it. Um, but no, and then it's, it's but the, 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 yeah, that's a very long-winded way of saying just as far as I, I can, as far back as I can remember, comics has always been around. Right, and I'm amazed that you mentioned the Victor book for boys because I think that was my first comic as well that I can remember my parents buying me. Um, I'm a big fan of Alf Tupper, the tough of the track, who's on the wall behind me. Yeah, and there was um, I remember what was it like? What were they called? Red 
Red Dragon or Red Diamond reprints of that yeah. all that kind of stuff, which had amazing Ian Kennedy covers. I, I, I had a good few of them, which were worth having just for the covers alone. And then you'd have amazing things like um, Cast Iron Bill. I don't know if that was Victor book for boys. Do you remember Cast Iron Bill? Yeah. He was a goalkeeper who had two psychic dogs who would bark. One would go on each post, and if the shot was going left, the dog on the left would bark, and the dog on the right would bark. And then I do remember there was one story where, in order to try, because he was unbeatable, he could not let in a goal. I think the the, the line was something like he'd be unbeatable keeper or something, uh, because of his psychic dogs. And then a ne'er do wells um, kidnapped one of his dogs, and suddenly he only had one dog. What are you going to do? But then that dog barked twice if the shot was going. <laughs> To the other side, the dog compensated. So, I mean, I to, I don't know why. I'm Maybe this is like a fever dream, but I I, I swear it's real. Uh, one day you will get to bring that comic back, Rob. Uh, yeah, God knows. Can you imagine if someone came to me? We want to revamp Cast Iron Bill and you're the man. And we're calling for the VAR on that one. Hmm. Um, so, Rob, you mentioned Marvel UK comics, um, the reprints in the 70s, and then we get into the early 80s. Take us to the book that we've discussed talking about for today's episode. Well, it's probably, I mean, as, as, as pivotal as, as sort of 2000 AD was for me, and, and it was at this period where I'm reading D.R. and Quinch uh, in 2000 AD by Alan Moore and Alan Davis, and you kind of go, like many people, you don't know much, but you, you are aware something is going on with everything Alan Moore writes is um, is is pretty special. Um, and then Daredevils came out, which was a monthly uh, Marvel UK reprint, which ran the Frank Miller Daredevil uh, run, which was extraordinary. Ran it in black and white. But again, uh, in terms of a maturity of storytelling, was was just on a different level. And then, and then it paired it amazingly with, well, partly with initially with, with Spider-Man reprints, um, classic Spider-Man stories, but also there was Alan Moore and Alan Davis's Captain Britain run. And it's one of these runs that not only did I absolutely um, adore it at the time, but it's it just to me it's yeah it's it's if if it's not my favorite comic of all time it's 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 in a very small if i'm if we're doing desert island discs for comics it's one of the ones that's coming but personally uh i think one of the things that i absolutely love about it is it's um and you can you can you know miracle man in warrior is again at roughly the same period is is, is perhaps a bit dark a bit darker and, and you know um a bit more rooted in sophisticated ideas especially as it progresses i can i can totally see that sort of captain britain is a little more unsophisticated it is um sort of anti-thatcherite student politics um uh, mixed with a love of sort of marvel and multiverse stories back when multiverse stories were actually refreshing as opposed to now um it's got a wit about it. It's silly at times. It's very 2000 AD at times. But it's just got this glorious... It's got one of the best villains of all time. Uh, two, actually, in one story. Jim Jaspers is, is amazing. Uh, the, the, the sort of a Tory MP who, who has reality-altering powers, um, but, it, but is effectively sort of like Terry Thomas, which is a lovely creation. And then you have the Fury, and the Fury is... I think it's sort of the, the Fury preempts James Cameron's Terminator by 
by a few years. And I have no way of proving it, but I, I would put good money with James Cameron probably read this and sort of, because the whole idea of an unstoppable robot that, that cannot be reasoned with, that feels no empathy, there's nothing you can do. It's just coming, basically. is such a linear uh, idea. And it kills superheroes. So so that allows Mr. Moore to have his cake and eat it, to, to, be, to have this sort of rather cynical edge of sort of, well, they're all silly, let's just kill them, you know. But what he does, and, he, and one of the things I absolutely love it for, and one of my favourite sequences of all time, is it's just so heroic as well. It, there is a there's a pure binary. I think there are certain storytelling things that we are hardwired to be. You can you can be as cynical and as old and jaded as as I currently now am. But certain things like sacrifice in stories just destroys me and just 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 leaves me just. And any kind of um, cool sort of oh, well, I'm, I know where this story's going. If you really care about a character. And they sacrifice themselves. It's just like, oh, you know, floods of tears. Um, and at the end of this, one of the things I absolutely love about Brian Braddock, who, who is essentially like he's this rich boy, aristocrat, superhero. He shouldn't be that interested in the character. But the, the theory not only kills him and he comes back from the dead, but more plays the trauma of that. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't you know, hand wave it away. It's such a traumatic thing. He's terrified of this thing, and when it comes back, he fights it and it beats him. And there's a great bit, like where you can almost see towards the end, um, that the the, the the rubbish way to write that scene at the end is he comes back and he just and he, and he beats it second time around, and it's rocky, you know, and all these things. It doesn't. It's just like no, you you cannot beat this thing. It's 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 not possible. But yet. Braddock keeps coming back and keeps getting up off the floor. And Alan Davis just draws it all gloriously. I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of these rare things, I think, where it's um, just everyone, it's lightning in a bottle and everyone's just absolutely firing on all cylinders. And, and you know, more will go on to write Watchmen a few years later and Killing Joke and all these things he's far more lauded for. But whether it's, because I was right place, right time for me, a special place in my heart. But I reread it a few years ago, and it just totally stands up, I think, for me. Um, so, yeah, I um, I kind of love this comic. So, Captain Britain, and um, I've, it's sometimes it's the Jasper's Warp story or Twisted World, the Crooked World, I've heard it called. Um, yeah. It is, as you say, it's that key Alan Moore and Alan Davis run from... 1982, 1983, Marvel superheroes comic, then the Daredevils you've mentioned, and then it finishes off in Mighty World of Marvel. I've got the big 2021 omnibus in front of me, which collects the earlier Dave Thorpe stories and the later Jamie Delano stories as well. Which are very good. The Jamie Delano stories are also very good as well. Absolutely. And you've sort of answered my first couple of questions because you were reading this in the Daredevils as it came out then. Yes, I was. Yeah, and 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 in uh, was it? Oh yeah, it was Marvel Superheroes, wasn't there originally? So yeah. that, uh, um, and one of the lovely things about it is you see Davis's progression, which just goes stratospheric. I mean, it's it, it's a little. Oh, here's a talent. Here's a talented guy. When he's initially drawing Captain Britain in Marvel Superheroes in black and white, and they're meeting Jackdaw, the kind of elf character that the Fury brutally kills. Um, 
you know, Moore's, uh, sorry, Davis is good there, but he's not fully formed. And then um, whatever happens, you know, by the time Daredevil's launches, it's just like, holy crap. I mean, he's just got, and he, and he did Harry 20 in, in, in the High Rock for 2000 AD, which again was, you know, very good. Um, but he's not, he's not where he, beca- where he is at Daredevil's. And it just, it just seems like it's really a lovely thing when you see an artist sort of find himself and, and not just find himself, just go up about 14 levels in front of your eyes, you know, um, and the, you know, the, just the canvas of what he's being asked to draw with the multiverse stuff and the science fiction stuff. And the, the then the, you know, you've got Jasper's altering reality. Um, but dramatically, are we, are we, are we on video here as well? Uh, as, we're not, as, the, 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 the podcast won't be video. It will just be audio. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, this is, I'll show it to you at the very least, but this is one of my all-time favourite sequences in, in comics, and it's basically, it's the hand coming, you know, the story, Davis's visual storytelling is just absolutely superb. The hand just appearing out of, it's where basically Jasper's puts the, to try and kill the Fury, sends it through the warp, and then the Fury kills Jasper, spoilers. And then there's these weird, um, from um, uh, Alice through the Looking Glass characters, and one of them shoves an axe through the Fury's spine, and it's down, and it just needs a second. And again, it's just like more Reedsy says, it begins to uh, uh, draw minerals from the earth around it. It needs replenishment. It just needs time. And it's already beaten the shit out of and killed Braddock, and that, that sequence there where Braddock just comes back and just... Yeah, uh, and even the ending. Then again, I'm going to give away the ending, but it's so wonderful the fact that it's not it's not Braddock that kills it at the end. It's it's again spoilers. It's Captain UK who from a, another reality who's a female version of Captain Britain who saw her husband her, her love killed by the Fury, and it has been so traumatized throughout that she's just been a crying, weeping mess. But she's the one at the end who finds the strength within herself to be the one to actually fill the Fury. I just think it's. Utterly wonderful. It turns out Alan Moore can write a bit. He can, yes. Um, I put in our notes that this is, uh, certainly for British superhero comics, possibly for all superhero comics, this is about as good as it gets, isn't it? The combination of Moore, Davis, uh, we'll mention Steve Craddock lettering, Bernie Jay was the editor. Um, if we stick with just with Alan Davis for just a moment more, because as you say, I always think this is the most perfect example of an artist going from really good to suddenly superb within a few issues. As you say, the graph of Alan Davis accelerating in, in this story is wonderful. And just mention, you mentioned Captain UK, because he also gets to draw some really weird and wonderful superhero characters. Before we started recording, we were talking about the special executive team that shows up in this. Yeah, which is uh, the alien bounty hunters who, who turn up in the middle of the story from just out of nowhere. And it, uh, they they feel like they belong from, which is quite fitting, they feel like they belong from another sort of narrative universe and suddenly they pop up in Braddock's um, stately home one night. Um, and they are just very odd. And I think Moore had previously written them in a backup strip in Doctor Who monthly or weekly, I forget. Yeah. Um, and just a just with no kind of reverence for sort of legal rights or whatever, had gone. Oh, I'll use them in this as well, and thought nothing of it. And unfortunately, they're completely bonkers and 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 utterly wonderful. 
and um, I don't think we've ever seen them again. There was there was a weird version of them. I remember in Alan Davis's Excalibur comic, but they were called something else, and they had certain characters which did come over from a special executive, and certain ones didn't, and they were not not quite the same. Um, but again, it's just it it. This is what I mean. I can't imagine, like, usually if you're working with an artist, you go, yeah, okay, so we're in this genre here, we're in this genre here. And just Davis is just not only, as we say, his talent just is taking off and his, his craft is is just expanding exponentially. It's um, He's also being asked to draw the wildest things. And, and he just pulls it all off with just, it just feels, you know, there's everything there. Just this, this is just a wonderful looking comic book. And um, as we speak, and when this episode comes out, of course, we've got Doctor Who back on our screens. Yeah. And I'm going to make a slight comparison between the Fury and the Weeping Angels in that they were perfect villains who perhaps get diluted by being used again later on. But yeah. there's something about, as you've described it, the Fury as the villain of this piece, or one of the villains of this piece, as you've said, this unstoppable... Um, robot that just will not stop kills superheroes uh it learns it adapts it evolves there's that wonderful line when Moore gets to write about you know how it learns and adapts and then captain britain some people never learn or something like that yes um you've written captain britain yourself how you know what is it about Moore's writing do you think that captures this deadly villain and makes it one of the most scary things in comics well, if any, if nothing else, I think Alan Moore has probably got the biggest brain of anyone who's written comics in, um, and, uh, you know, in my lifetime. Um, and um, on top of that, but the the, the reason I, I, I think some aspects of Captain Britain are my favourites are amidst all this wonderful imagination and whatever he's doing with political satire in the book about it, you know, saying things about. Um, where Britain was in about 80, wherever we are, 83, something like that, which is a pretty, pretty dark place. Um, uh, he's, yeah, and he's, he's, he's reaching all these ideas about sort of a rise of sort of, you know, sort of the little sort of a background noises of a rise of fascism and what it could become. And there's, there's imagery of superheroes in concentration camps and, you know, police, um, uh, armored police and, and things like this. What I'm t- the, there's a real superheroes at their heart are very, very pure. It's it's a pure idea. There's goodies and baddies, and they you know someone is trying to do good and save a day, and someone is trying to do bad. And what and the fury is such a, a just this pure terrifying idea. But just like that's what it is. It's just it's one line. It's it's as tight a, a concept for for a character as as you can have. It kills superheroes. It never stops. And, and can't be stopped. And 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 that idea of the, like, even at various points, Captain Britain actually at one point in the story leaves a reality and goes to another. He kills it in one reality. And there's an image, I, I remember sort of a fury stood over Captain Britain's grave and just staring at it. It just bothers him. It, it, it knows that somewhere else out there, Captain Britain has been brought back to life. Um, and so it finds a way to to come through, to come after him. And that is, I mean, again, it is the Terminator. It's just this thing of just like, you can run, but this thing is going to turn up at your door one day. And that's um, a very sort of primal fear thing that Moore's tapping into there. Um, 
But so um, yeah, but I, I, this is but Braddock is like as I said, it's even actually when you read it, you kind of he's not that interesting a character. It's more what he what he does, and he, I guess he is from a writing point of view. You always kind of go, we don't care who a character is. People are defined by their actions. Characters on the page, readers will judge them by their actions. And if a writer's there going, ah, but actually, got all these hidden depths, and you go, oh. People don't really care about that. You judge a person by what they do, not 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 you know the reams of background information you've written. Um, and and Braddock is is tries to be a hero. He's kind of a very quite a limited hero. Um, I imagine Alan Moore's quite probably fairly embarrassed to just be writing a character with a British flag draped all over him, and and what Captain Britain would be today in in our society of post Brexit. I mean, it, it's um, and terms like gammon and things like that would be would be interesting. But for whatever reason, he wrote a really amazing superhero story. <laughs> and you've mentioned this already. We rarely see superheroes being afraid of the villains, it seems. But Captain Britain and Captain UK, the stuff they go through when they realise the Fury is back, is um, it's very sort of like quite emotional in places as well, isn't it? Because you see the trauma that Captain UK particularly has experienced, but also Captain Britain as well. Uh, tremendous stuff. Yeah, Saturday night, I think, uh, the, uh, Captain Britain's sort of eh, dimension, other dimensional empress friend in it, sort of at one point, like, Captain UK is just like, he tries to give her a kind of like, Captain UK a rousing speech or something. And she goes, oh, for God's sake, she's, can't you see she's scared, you know? And she like and yeah, and she is just a mess because. But then you do see in flashback, but she, the fury in her reality, killed her lover, who put her in a transporter tube to get her out in the kind of Superman as a baby type of thing to get her out. But she actually saw him, um, and it's a horror. It's it's just it's not it's not like oh I've got an evil plan. It's like this is this is a horror. Yeah, it, the baddie is a horror story. Like I say, you have, well, um, when you're writing for Marvel, you've got a chance to write Captain Britain a couple of times. You were saying beforehand that you managed to, um, you were doing one series that you managed to work Captain Britain in just because you wanted to write Cap. I did a, I did a, uh, a sort of time travel a series uh, for Marvel called The Iron Age. And in, in, when I pitched it, and, and um, it was, uh, this is how things changed. It was initially called Throwbacks. And the whole idea was that we would see all these heroes of, of you know, they, they, their costumes change over the years. And I thought, well, we'll you know, we'll, we'll do a time travel thing and we'll get a chance to leap uh, Doctor Who style between different key sort of set pieces in Marvel history. And when I first pitched it, Captain Britain was the lead and Marvel basically said, look, this won't sell with Captain Britain. So suddenly Iron Man became the lead. Uh, but I did manage to kind of, one of the set pieces was writing Captain Britain just... In in yeah the period roughly I forget now somewhere around this period of, of the Jasper's Wharf and everything Jasper's wasn't in it but I got to write Captain Britain for a, that's pure, that was purely me fanboying and Ben Oliver drew that issue if anyone can track it down it's it's worthwhile because Ben's just an amazing artist and I kind of managed to crowbar him into blackmail him into drawing interiors on that he drew an amazing Captain Britain. Um, and then I, I, as you pointed out before we came on, and I had entirely forgotten, which is quite worrying. I, I also did a, a Deadpool team up issue with Captain Britain as well. But again, at that point when I was working for Marvel, and they said, "Do you, I think I did two issues of Cap, a Deadpool team up, and one was Thor, 
it's kind of fun. And they said, who else do you want to do? I went, Captain Britain. So it was like, I was at that point. If, if, if I was asked, who do you want to do? Captain Britain would, would kind of go, yes, please. But I also uh, pitched a Captain Britain miniseries to Marvel, which got so far and then then kind of put, uh, died on the vine somewhere along the way. Ma- many, many pitches are, are developed. Not many are called. <laughs> When you're in the Marvel and DC world, things get so far sometimes, and then they die. So that was that was a shame. I would I would have loved to have done that. So here we have Captain Britain and the Jasper's Warp story by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. Like I say, as good as superhero comics get. Um, we have covered this story before on the podcast quite a while back, but you, I don't think you'd be surprised to know, Rob. This is an incredibly popular story. Yes, um, I mean it's not it's not a it's not a niche choice. I'm, yeah. I'm fully. But if you if you do kind of go well, what are your your pivotal, you know, pivotal comics? And this is this is definitely one of them for me. Um, but it's also so good that I'd be I'd be I, you know a one off issue is one thing you know in that era. But I'd be quite you know good luck following that up. And I don't think I mean like say as good a writer as Jamie Delano is. Jamie Delano is an amazingly good writer and 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 wrote some of the best Hellblazer, and he wrote some very 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 good. Captain Britain stories with Alan Davis, which directly followed this after more left. Um, but it still felt like oh, it's not quite, but it's like it's going on after the Beatles. Do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, it, so yeah, tough going. We play this game on the podcast called the Grail Page Game, where we imagine that the art is all available and we could afford it, which I'm sure we can't. If you were to pick a page from this run by Alan Davis to own and hang on your wall, would it be that page of Cap getting back up after the Fury has killed Jaspers? Yes, it would. And then I can, but even then, I can feel there's a, a friend of mine who's an art dealer. I was having a conversation with him recently about when artists occasionally go, oh, choose a page from something you've done. And you choose foolishly choose the storytelling beat that you love, because you go, ah, oh, I, I love that beat. That's amazing. And you ignore the fact that the splash page you could have had will probably be worth two hundred thousand pounds in a few years. So, but I, I would choose, like I said, the the page where the the the, the axeman puts the axe in in uh, the Fury's back, spine, and then it's only three, three panels. But then, actually, the page that follows it is when Captain Britain actually kicks the shit out of the Fury, and that's a great page as well. But no, I'll, I'll have the one just where the hand comes on the shoulder and the Fury turns around, and you just kind of—it's—it's the—it's the cavalry coming beat, basically. It's—it's—it's. It's, uh, but I'm, as I said earlier, I'm kind of defenseless against certain heroic storytelling moments. I think. So if you have the Captain Britain omnibus, which hopefully does have page numbers, that is page 241. I'll be posting that image on the socials when this episode comes out. Uh, We're very fortunate that nobody else has ever picked that page, so that one becomes virtually yours, Rob, by the rules of the game. I'm enjoying this. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Your NFT from Captain Britain. Uh, (laughs) Not so much now. You've spoiled it. (laughs) Um, and this did this hardback is now getting expensive as Captain Britain collections of this story tend to do, but you can get it digitally on the Kindle for about sixteen quid and read these wonderful stories. Uh, just like as I say, probably the best that Captain Britain's ever been. Uh, wonderful stuff. 
So that's Captain Britain and Fury. I'm going to turn you to another amazing comic with another amazing artist because when this episode comes out, issue two of your image comic with Piper Petrolhead will have come out. I got issue one off you both at Thought Bubble. Tell us what's the setup for Petrolhead, Rob? Um, the setup is uh, in a in a climate ravaged future where humanity lives in small domed cities. What's left of humanity? Uh, one of the extreme sports that were put on to try and keep the people entertained and stop them going insane was was uh, robot uh, racing cars, and they were called the Petrolheads. It was a race of them. And they were given feeling circuits, so when they crashed and blew up, they'd feel it, and that makes all the drama all the more. They they were kind of designed to have their own toys, and 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 you know they were marketing teams so that you know kids would be in their fan clubs. Anyway, that was a long time ago. Someone at some point realised that having sort of petrol belching robots uh, racing each other in a domed city when the environment has already been killed, uh, destroyed, was a bad idea, and shut them down. So when we uh, meet our main character, our hero, uh, anti-hero, really, called Petrolhead, he's living in a garage in a slum in the city. And then one night the police turn up uh, because someone's hiding in his garage. And it turns out it's a little girl and a scientist on the run. And they um, they might just have a means of turning the environment back and saving the world and saving the human race. Someone doesn't want them to get it out, and then Pe- Petrolhead is at that point is the the classic sort of a retired heavyweight boxer. He always swore he wasn't getting back in the ring, and then he's got to do what he does best, which is drive. And from that point on, it's a it's a you know robot ro- uh, sci fi road movie basically. And you're working with Pi Par. Uh, you've done this for Image. How did it come about? How did you and Pi start this project off? Well, Pi was. Um, uh, was Pi works for 2000 and he was the designer on 2000 for many years and we, we knew each other a little uh, he was posting uh, during lockdown these amazing posters of robots and futuristic racing cars and they were so bright and so colourful and they, they, they were just fun uh, as well as looking terrific and I dropped in my line and went have you thought about doing a comic with this sort of thing so none of petrolhead didn't exist you know we came up with petrolhead together in the world but it was like and he was yeah okay great um so from that point on it, it felt like half the battle was there because tonally Pi's prints were you could just see it you know what i mean this was going to be something an all ages comic it was going to be fun it was going to have a cool looking robots and cool looking racing cars um and then it was just trying to come up with a cast of characters and trying to come up with a world and, and a narrative drive and all the things that, you know, that writers do. And, and just to sort of make it all cohesive and, and, you know, just at the end of the day, just come up with a fun story, um, which it took us some time. Uh, we wanted to do it create our own because we really loved it. And we kind of thought, well, Image is the only only company really out there that allows you to own 100% of it. Um, so... You know that's that's what we did, and really, I think from the third, I, I wrote a piece on my website recently about sort of a genesis of it and the you know the development of it, um, and that's on robwilliamscomics.co.uk. Um, if anybody wants to read that, but I think it was about two years from uh, Pi's initial attempts at designing 
Petrolhead uh, to the comic coming out. So a lot of work's gone into this. Um, as you say, we know Pi Par for his graphic design work on 2000 AD, and I know him that he does Intestinauts with Arthur Wyatt. I think he did Realm of the Damned with Alec Worley, I think that is. Yeah, he did about three volumes of that, which I, I, I knew about Realm of the Damned. I'd seen some of it, but I, I wasn't aware there was three entire graphic novels of that. But his artwork is astonishing in Petrolhead. Um because he's done, I mean, I think he's done it all colours, graphic design, and everything, lettering. And just wonderful artwork. I mean, he's, again, talking about Alan Davis, talking about an artist who's really gone superlative. This is just fantastic stuff. What's it like working with him on this? Uh, genuinely brilliant. Um, it, it's been a joy because um, another thing, is, put it so, I'd seen Pi's posters and they were amazing. I knew his colours were great and, and all these things and, and his designs were terrific. I, I didn't really know just how good his visual storytelling was going to be. And that's that's the absolutely amazing surprise for me. Um, not you know, Obviously, he, I knew he was good going in. It's not as if it was a shock or anything, but just just how good it is. I mean, I'm, I'm writing sort of character beats and the acting performances he gives from his characters, even if they're robots, um, is just terrific. Um, but is it's where I mean I I write uh, very visually. If any any artist who's, who works for me will know, I will very often talk about things in panel descriptions like where the camera is, you know, and and look at you know. Uh, but again, it's up to the art. Bottom line is, it's up to the artist, and they always do something which is a little bit of surprise you didn't expect. And like it's things like where Pi places his camera for best dramatic effect just blows me away because he makes so many great choices. All that stuff is, you know, people look at it and they rightly talk about how amazing the colours are and the designs and the robots and all these things. But I think as a dramatic storyteller, he he is he is extraordinarily good. And that's a large part of the reason why Petrolhead is as good as it is. Um, you know, obviously it's always a partnership and you have you know, a script and the characters and all that and me, but... I've, I've if I, I've been doing comic writing comics for twenty years, and I know full well you can write the best script in the world, and you give it to an artist, and they can butcher it, or you can write a kind of all right script, and an artist can absolutely make it fly. Um, and I, I like to think Petrolhead is both of us kind of um, top of our game, really. Um, uh, but yes, Pi is extraordinarily good, and I feel very fortunate that we were doing this together. It's a fantastic first issue, but you know, probably the best first issue I've read all year. It's uh, just so much fun, and you know, I'm going to encourage people to get on board at Petrolhead. And I'm also going to thank you for creating Dave, the wise cracking talking robot bird that Petrolhead has that fires lasers out of its butt as well. Indeed, sophistication is our <laughs> middle at a uh, team Petrolhead. No, it's um. And the weird, one of the weird thing is, and this happens quite often, uh, no, in the initial pitch, and in fact, when I, I think when I sat down to write issue one, Dave didn't exist. Um, uh, and everything else did, apart from Dave. I mean, basically, I got to the point where I was going to have Petrol Head um, living on his own in this garage, um, living his little retired life of solitude when we first meet him. And you kind of went, well, he's got no one to talk to. Um, and then, so Dave appeared and um, 
was there as a sort of storytelling sort of means. Um, but then uh, the fact that he was this little sarcastic little blue tit robot bird who, as you say, can as as an ongoing war with a local cat, we he just he, he doesn't kill it, but he just sort of enjoys stunning it um, with with laser bolts out of his butt. But also then what it does is Petrolhead, who is this grumpy kind of Ernest Borgnine, kind of like Ben Grimm from Fantastic Four type character, uh, effectively he's made Dave, who's a, a thing of beauty, uh, a, li- a beautiful little b- bird creation, very delicate. But he's also, Dave's kind of, as you see as the story goes on, kind of his conscience. So in a way, Petrolhead has created his own conscience. He's, Dave is like Jiminy Cricket, although he is just, Sarcastic and mouthy, and calls him on it, calls Petrolhead and his bullshit. Um, so yeah, people have seen to respond really well to Dave, uh, which is which is nice. But again, I, I find it funny that he was like literally the last thing that actually was created for the book. Wonderful stuff. And you've just launched the website for it, petrolheadcomic.com, where yeah. you can. I mean, two days ago, actually, our shop went live, which we're very excited right. about. So there, there is stuff you can buy on there, like exclusive prints and. You can get a script from uh, the, if people want to see how we how we pitched it. And we did a sample, sort of few pages, a sequence, so you can read that. Which um, uh, if you if you go to the shop and have a look, but yeah, there's lots of, lots of interesting things on the um, on the website. So yeah, and this is the thing. It's it's when you do an image book like this, um, you own it, but you also you you. It's like running your own little business, which has been a, a bit of an adventure, really. You don't normally do that with most jobs. You write the script and you hand it over, and everyone else does everything. But this is this is just me and Pi running the entire thing and trying to kind of trying to get as many people to see it as we can. Because, like I say, we genuinely think it's a the really good comic. I was going to ask about that with Image because, as you say, you and Pi own it with Image, or what you know, you own the the project. But there's an awful lot of emphasis on you and Pi then having to promote it as well. Yeah, and, yeah. You put you you actually you I don't know about I I haven't sort of measured at the times, but you probably put as much work into all the other stuff around it as you do. Um, you know, for me, sort of writing the scripts and, and plotting it and stuff. Pi has a lot more workload in terms of he's colouring it, he's drawing it, he's designing the book as well, he's lettering it. But then, you know, I've been, I've put a huge amount of work into sort of generating press for it. You're kind of, you you have to try and talk to retailers, um, all these things. But when you're working for a 2000 AD or a Marvel or a DC, other people do for you. Hmm. But it's all up to you, and because you, there's an awareness if you don't do this stuff, you can have the best comic in the world, and if only four people know about it, then it's just going to um, die on the vine. So um, yeah, it's a it, it's a lot of work, but there are also opportunities to kind of, in a way, which there are in, in, in with, with work for higher comics to to you know to make money out of it as well, which I hate to be. That makes me sound terribly grubby commercial but at the end of the day we're all going to make a living out of doing this stuff absolutely so petrolheadcomic.com and robwilliamscomics.co.uk both those links will be in the show notes for this episode so look there and follow the links get copies of issue one and two of petrolhead i noticed popped up i think just literally yesterday on amazon i saw the first collected edition is pre-orders for next june i think rob is that right yeah, probably. Um, it's let me think. I think 
the first arc, issue five, should come out March, and then I think Image tend to have trade paperbacks three months after after that, so it'll, it'll be somewhere around then. And then our current plan is to, it'll all depend on sales, but our current plan is to sort of, I think, do a, a, a mini-series every year, kind of like the Hellboy model, and hopefully we'll have a graphic novel, um, you know, a Petrolhead graphic novel coming out every year, because there, there genuinely is lots more story to tell. We have created quite a quite a w- big world, but we we haven't explored that much. And, and you, you write a line like, um, you see the Dome City in issue one, the, uh, the ozone, and it says one of the seven cities um, containing what's left of humanity. And just you write that simple little line and you go, oh, well, there's seven cities they could visit along the way. You know, And, and the world sort of grows. Uh, and, and actually, issue the first arc, it starts off Petrolhead and Dave. And by the end of the first arc, they're a little ensemble. They've just, like, they seem to pick up new characters along the way. And, and Pi and I have really loved each, each of these new characters that pops up and... Um, so that, that's usually a good sign. Yeah, it, it, sometimes things are like writing things are like pulling teeth, and sometimes they're just fun. This has just been fun, and it's great fun. Comics, delightful. Get issues one and two of Petrol Head. Go to the links and get your copy. Multiple covers for the first issue, at least I see. And you had you you had them all at Thought Bubble as well, didn't you? Yeah, there's four four covers for issue one. One of the cover, uh, three of them by Pi, and then we've got a cover by Lawrence Campbell, who's a good friend of mine. I've done a bunch of comics with all of the years and Lawrence very kindly did us cover. And then we've got, uh, we've got a Ben Wilshire variant cover for four or two for 2000 readers. And then we've got PJ Holden has done us one for issue five. So, um, I feel like we're a little offshoot of 2008 sneaking into the American comics market. Great stuff. We love that. And, Talking about 2000 AD, you've just wrapped up the Judge Dredd poison story in the prog, uh, doing one of my favourite sort of types of Dredd story, the Dredd Detective, which is great stuff. Um, Any other Judge Dredd or 2000 AD projects that you're allowed to talk about coming up that you you can say? Yeah, we've got... uh, Well, uh, they were announced at Thought Bubble a couple of weeks back. They said that uh, me and Arthur Wyatt have got a nine-part Dredd which I believe is starting in February, called um, A Better World, and that's drawn by Henry Flint. And uh, and it's it's the um, the next instalment of our long-running sort of Judge Maitland story. We've kind of like dipping in and dipping out over, over a period of Maitland, basically, who is the head of accounts. That's always an exciting way to start a story. Oh, they're, kind of, <laughs> they're going into the accounts department. Um, but she basically runs the numbers... Uh, I, I did a while back and realized that basically all the judges were doing was, was funding warfare on the streets, basically. And they, you know, they can't keep doing this. So she ran the numbers uh, uh, in, in, in her sort of modeling and said, well, what if we transferred the money uh, less into sort of like arming the judges and more into educating the citizens and, and making making life better for them? And the numbers came back, and they showed that they'd get better results. Um, so the last time we saw Maitland, the council, backed by Dread, basically said, look, you can trial this on one sector. So A Better World is the story of Judge Maitland trialing that, which is effectively to fund the police um, in one sector to see if it works. Um, and Henry Flint has done, is is doing, um, 
amazing work on it because Henry basically is a is is a mad genius and and just like again a brilliant storyteller and I've worked with him a bunch. But on this one, Henry went. I might try something different on this one. It was like, yeah, okay, because like t- trust Henry implicitly. And he, I think he'd been reading Dark Knight Returns, and he decided he was going to have a bit of that. So he's taken our scripts and is breaking each page down. Like I'll send in, or Arthur will send in a five-panel page, and what's coming back is sort of fourteen panels with little character increments. And I might have written a panel with three voice bubbles and Henry's drawn three panels with one voice bubble in each panel. So it looks very different from, from, um, and it's got its own pace and, and, uh, and the pages have been coming in and, and they're genuinely amazing. Um, so I'm quite excited about that. Um, and it's going to be interesting as well because it's not most things I'm, I write full script and the artist pretty much follows the script. This is a little experiment, but I think it's, um, I think it looks great. Um, and then I've got another dread following that. Um, I'm not sure when this is coming out, but with the great RM Gera, who, who was the artist on Sculpt, right. who's a student artist, who's um, um, a friend of mine. And we've done a couple of things before. We did a one-off dread a few years ago. He drew an issue of Unfollow, a series of mine for Vertigo oh, Comics. Yes, yeah. um, and Gera is, again, just, just a just an amazing artist <laughs> and um, I've, got, I've got a page from him through this morning and it just blows me away he's kind of he's got sort of elements of sort of it feels like there's bits of toppy and breccia and people like that it's um and, and that one is um uh i'm sorry what to say about that one it's basically it's it's up in the northern uh, story set in the northern radlands which we don't tend to see a lot in dread dread's world we see the cursed earth but it's taking dread up into alaska and it's effectively a store. It's it's effectively like a Jaws, um, but I like the idea. of Dread's always the alpha, and I thought, well, let's put him in a situation where this time there's a bigger alpha, um, and it's a kind of very primal survival Dread story. Uh, and Julia Briscoe is coloring that. Who who coloured um, coloured Gera on Sculpt, and uh, they're they're an amazing team. So uh, yes, that that uh, that will look. Glorious, trust me. Excellent. So more Judge Dread excitement to come in 2024, more Petrolhead to come. Uh, like I say, follow all the links in the show notes um, to keep up with what Rob's doing and to read Petrolhead. Um, Rob, thank you so much for giving up your time this Thursday morning to talk about some wonderful Captain Britain, but also to c- tell us about Petrolhead and your up- upcoming projects. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for having me, Eamon. It's, uh, it's nice to be on. And uh... Always happy to talk about good comics. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we finally got round to it because we keep bumping into each other at uh, conventions. Um, so, yeah, and looking forward. Do you know will you be at Lawless next year, possibly? I believe so, yeah. I think um, Sue, um, the organiser, asked me. Uh, and I think Pi is going to be there as well. Oh, excellent. So we can, you can, maybe we'll have a little petrol head table. Uh, but um, yes, looking forward to that. When is it? Is it May? Normally? It's usually the end of May, isn't it? So you might even have the trade, possibly. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, but we will. Yeah, look at yeah, Lawless is always great every year, and um, it's in Bristol normally, and I live about half an hour up the road, so it's perfect for perfect, me. But it, yeah. it's a lovely little celebration of all things 2000 AD and Dread. Fantastic stuff. Thank you very much to Rob. 
And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links, including links to all of Rob's projects at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, Mastodon, probably on Ozone, and any other socials that have popped up since we recorded. And email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com, if you've got comments, suggestions, or a book that you'd like to come on and talk about. So until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's uh, goodbye from me and... Goodbye. Goodbye.